morning. Let me add my welcome to all those who have already welcomed you. My name is uh, Marshall Brown. I'm one of the pastors here. I'll teach on the passages that Walter just read for us. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online or later today or in the week when uh, the recording comes up. The name of our church is Grace Presbyterian Church, Grace Presbyterian Church. And fundamentally, maybe above all things, what we believe here is that the grace of God in Christ is transformative, that the God, grace of God in Christ uh, changes everything. It can change you. It can change uh, me. And so if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, we're so glad you're here and welcome you. Hope this is a place where you find to be welcoming and a chance for you to go further on that path of following Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not sure about the claims of Jesus, or you're joining us online and you're not sure about the claims of Jesus, you're investigating, this also is a church for you. We want to take your questions seriously, give you a chance to ask those questions, to try on Christianity, to put it aside, whatever it is uh, for you. We're a church that welcomes all people to consider the claims of Jesus, regardless of their background or their belief. Now, because we believe that grace changes everything, we, because we believe in grace, uh, we are big believers in prayers to the God of grace. So I would like to invite you this uh, Tuesday night at 7 p.m. One of the best things you can do this week is join our monthly prayer meeting. It's a Zoom meeting at 7 p.m. Uh, this Tuesday night. The Zoom link is in the Grace Connect email, and I think it comes out tomorrow in an email as well. But let me pray before we look at the passage here in the Gospel of Matthew. God of grace, we come to you uh, this morning and we look at uh, two men who have uh, very different but challenging responses to your son, the Lord Jesus. I pray that we would hear their stories. I pray that we would listen to their stories. But above all, God, I pray that we would behold the Lamb of God, your son, who takes away the sins of the world. And it's in his name and for his sake that we pray. Amen. Well, uh, been years now, but we, my wife and I moved here from West Los Angeles. And if you live in West Los Angeles, one thing you've got to get used to is seeing famous people, seeing celebrities. And so, and when you see a celebrity, you kind of do the double take. And you're like, oh, that's, I've seen them on a 70-foot screen. Like, I recognize this person. What am I going to do? What do you do when you run into someone famous? Do you try to talk to them? You know, hey, what's up? Do you try to take a selfie with them? Uh, do you act like you don't see them? They're just one of us, right? You try to play it cool. You know, like, yeah, we're just here, right? Uh, what do you do? How do you respond when you run into someone famous? One of my favorite stories involves uh, Robert Redford. He was about to go into an ice cream parlor, and he held the door for a woman to go ahead of him, and she was determined to play it cool, determined to play it cool, not acting like Robert Redford was not in line behind her for ice cream, okay? So she goes to the counter, she digs into her purse, pulls out her wallet, pays for her ice cream comb, takes her ice cream comb, and then proceeds to dump not her wallet, but her ice cream cone in her purse. She tried to play it cool, but she was so rattled. How do you respond? How do you respond when you come in a counter with someone famous? Well, we have been studying uh, the Gospel of Matthew. We're looking at chapters 8 through chapter 20 between now and Advent, now and Thanksgiving. And we're meeting Jesus in Matthew. And in 2019, two years ago, we started this gospel. We looked at Jesus' birth and those intro stories. Then we spent several months on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus describes what life in his kingdom is like. And then, uh, just starting a couple of weeks ago, in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, we see Jesus demonstrating what that kingdom looks like, both in his healings and his calling people to follow him. Two weeks ago, Chris Colquitt preached on Matthew 10, the Sermon on Mission, where Jesus, we see what it looks like to receive Jesus and to represent Jesus. 
But starting here in Matthew chapter 11, we begin to see how various people respond to, respond to Jesus and his kingdom, the message of his kingdom. The responses, as we'll see in the weeks to come, will vary from misunderstanding to outright rejection. And the section will culminate in Matthew chapter 16 when Peter, Jesus will ask his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter will give the true and right response. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. So today we come to and we consider two responses to Jesus and his message. John the Baptist and a man named Herod Antipas. John the Baptist and Herod Antipas. Now, normally I would focus on one of these, but I got two goals here. One, I'm trying to cover a lot of ground uh, before Thanksgiving. Uh, but also, these two, John the Baptist and Herod, they're kind of connected. They're connected uh, forever, forever interlocked. They're a little bit like, uh, you know, Meghan Markle and Kate Middleton, right? Uh, Tom Brady, Bill Belichick. Anybody? Roy Kent, Jamie Tart. Uh, I see you, I see you. Their legacies are wrapped up in one another. Both have responses to either Jesus or the kingdom. So I want to see Herod's response, which is a moral rejection of God's kingdom, and then John the Baptist's response to Jesus, which is confusion and a searching question. But first, and more briefly, Herod's response, the moral rejection of God's kingdom. Now, chapter 14, we're going to look at first. It is a flashback, okay? It's a flashback. But verse 1, notice verse 1, it makes clear that Herod knows of Jesus and his message. We don't know all what he knows, but we do know that his message has primarily been mediated to Herod through Jesus. He has exposure to Jesus, but it's mainly through John. I think I said that incorrectly. It's mainly through John that Herod has come to understand Jesus and his kingdom. Let me read again, though, verses 3 and 4 of Matthew 14. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodotus, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Here's what's happening. Herod is having an adulterous affair with his brother's wife. And John the Baptist has spoken against this. Because of that, Herod has arrested John. He doesn't like what he's heard. He doesn't like his name sullied in the street in public. He arrests him to keep John from speaking. Verse 5 tells us that Herod wanted to put him to death, because he, but he feared the people, so he didn't. But then it comes to a tipping point. Verse 6, there's this creepy episode. I mean, it's, it's almost not fit for, for anybody being in the room with this. This creepy episode when his mistress's daughter dances before Herod and it, quote, pleases him. I mean, if you're following the NFL, this is Herod's Urban Meyer moment. <laughs> Y'all laughed more than the last crowd. Verse 7, verse 7, Herod is so pleased that he makes a promise to give this young woman anything she wants. And then it, it becomes almost disgusting. Verse 8, through her mother's prodding, she asks for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And then verse 9, Herod reluctantly does it and he has John beheaded. It's a story that has so many levels of debauchery and frankly triggers. But Herod's response to and rejection of John's message about Jesus' kingdom, his response to and his rejection of Jesus' kingdom through John is a moral rejection. Herod wants to do what Herod wants to do. And what does Herod want? Herod wants his brother's wife. To quote Woody Allen from a circumstance not too far different, the heart wants what it wants. 
Now, I, I, I told this story because I'm going to focus on John 11 and the story of John the Baptist. But I tell this story because I think it's important to see. Because so oftentimes when people start to talk about their doubts about Christianity, their doubts about the intellectual integrity of Christianity, about Jesus and his kingdom, I find that often, not always, I do think there are real questions and doubts. We're going to talk about that. But oftentimes when somebody who's been a follower of Jesus starts to have all these doubts, it's because they want to do something that is contrary, or they are doing something that is contrary to the will of God. And then they start to have doubts. In other words... The moral break with Christianity often precedes and leads to the intellectual break. Doubts are often used, not always, again, but doubts, there are real doubts. Doubts are used as a cover for rejecting the lordship of Jesus simply because we want to do something, right? Because here's the deal, if Jesus is Lord, and he is, he has something very clear to say about what we do with our bodies and with whom. He has something very clear to say what we do with our money, what we do with our time. If Jesus is Lord, he is Lord of all of life. And too often times we use our doubts as a cover for doing what we want to do. Herod has heard about Jesus' message through John and its requirements, and his response is to reject God's kingdom because of the moral requirements. Okay, that's Herod. That's one response. But let's look at John the Baptist in a little more depth in Matthew chapter 11. Someone with quite sincere questions. And I don't mind telling you, this is one of my, John 11, these first six verses are one of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament. They are so tender, so authentic. But let's see a John the Baptist. Now here's the deal. At this point in the story, at this point in the story, John the Baptist is the ideal follower of Jesus. He is the follower of Jesus. A very few late verses later in chapter 11, verse 11, I should have printed this. It's in your Bible if you have your Bible open. Jesus himself says this just five verses later. He says this about John the Baptist. Among those born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, two weeks ago with Chris Colquitt, we looked at Matthew chapter 10. Jesus sermoned four disciples who were going on mission. Let me summarize Matthew chapter 10. Jesus calls his disciples to himself. He sends them out, and he gives them instructions. He tells them, by the way, that persecution is going to come, and you should not be afraid. And he says that his mission will include judgment. He comes, quote, to bring peace, not a sword. Now, what I want us to do briefly is to look at the life of John the Baptist through the lens of Matthew chapter 10 and the picture of what a follower of Jesus is supposed to be like. Let's consider John the Baptist. First, you've got to note this. John the Baptist had a personal connection with Jesus. Their mothers were related. They had likely grown up seeing one another at least periodically. They'd known each other since childhood, most likely. In Matthew chapter 3, earlier in this book, when John the Baptist is introduced, it says he lives in the wilderness. He lives a life of discomfort. His preaching is summarized, John's is, as this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He called the religious authorities a brood of vipers. He was the very first person to identify the Messiah. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He first saw Jesus for who he was. And then there's this. He baptized Jesus. I mean, like, Nick and I kind of fight over who. I mean, I, I'm just kind of jealous. I, got, I didn't get to baptize Finley right there. Jesus got baptized by John, okay? Like, resume. Like, that's like number one on a pastor's resume. I baptized. 
Who'd you baptize? Yeah, Jesus. Okay. <laughs> Which means he presumably heard the very voice of God the Father speaking from heaven, and he saw the Spirit descend as a dove. This is what John the Baptist said about Jesus. The one who is coming is mightier than me. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. And then one of my favorite lines from John the Baptist, he, Jesus, must become greater. I must become less. And in chapter 14, which we looked at a moment ago, John the Baptist boldly challenged Herod, this person of power. And he said, with no fear, he challenges Herod, and he faces the consequence. He's now sitting in a prison. He is being persecuted. On the merits of Matthew 10's picture of what a disciple looks like, John is the ideal disciple. He has given his life, John has, to the cause of Jesus and his kingdom. The ideal disciple. And for that, what does he get? He gets a jail cell. And we know that this is a jail cell that ends in execution. Now he starts to get reports from his disciple about, quote, the deeds of the Christ. And they come back to him and they say, this is what Jesus is doing. You know, he's healing some people, you know, a leper and a Gentile and a woman, you know. He's calling some rather marginal people, maybe some scandalous people, fishermen, you know, dirty fishermen and, you know, immoral tax collectors. Uh, he's kind of stayed around here. You know, he hadn't gone down to Jerusalem. He seems to have done nothing with the temple. Uh, not much has changed, it seems like. And Jesus hears about these deeds. He's not impressed. He's got a question. And so through his disciples, he sends this message to Jesus. Verse 3, are you the one who's to come, or should we expect another? Now mark me that that very phrase, the one who is to come, that is actually how John had identified Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. He'd use that very same phrase, the one who is to come. It's actually technical language from the Jewish scriptures from the Old Testament for Messiah. If you were to look at Malachi 2 or Isaiah 35, you would see that phrase applied to the Messiah. John the Baptist has identified Jesus as the one who is to come, and now he's saying, are you? Are you the one who is to come? Well, let's look at what John the Baptist actually expected from the Messiah. If you have your Bible, look in Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. I'll read it for you. Matthew chapter 3, verses 10, 11, and 12. This is John the Baptist speaking. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. His sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You see, John the Baptist's expectation and his image of the Messiah is an image of power, one who brings judgment and fire, who wields an axe and a winnowing fork. And the reports that John the Baptist is getting, they don't measure up with what he has expected. And so he's asking, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? I mean, put yourself in his shoes. He's disappointed. There's no systemic change that we can see. There's no widespread justice being achieved. There's been no revival among the Jews. The Romans are still occupying, and it doesn't seem like any important people have become followers of Jesus. Let me quote Dale Bruner, one of my favorite commentators. He says this, The Pharisees at this point in time, they still control popular religious life. The Sadducees still control the temple. The whole religious system seems thoroughly unthreatened by Jesus' do-goodism in the hills. And what is more, John is in prison 
And Herod, the embodiment of oppressive establishment, is on the throne about to take John's head off. And then there's this. John is asking this question from a prison cell. And by the way, this story is, is corroborated in, not just in the scriptures, but in Josephus' uh, story of the Antiquities. He's in prison. Jesus is out there healing people, raising people to life, giving purpose and meaning to ne'er-do-wells, scandalous people like Matthew. And John the Baptist, well, he's in a jail cell, right? He'd given up, a life of, he'd given up any luxury to live in the wilderness, He had spoken truth to power. He had pointed away from himself, humbled himself, pointed people to Jesus. And that guy, that guy is the one in prison. He's got a question. Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one? This is such a tender passage to me. It's so real. Because if you're like me, you felt like this. Are you the one, Jesus? I'm trying to do the right thing here. I'm trying to do right. And my life seems to be getting worse and worse. Maybe you are a student, high school or college, and you've taken a stand on morality. I will not do this or that, whatever it is. And on social media or with your friends, you get blown up, called a Jesus freak, thrown out of your friend group. Or in love, you tell somebody that you believe in Jesus, that he's the way, the truth, and the life. People say you're full of hate. You're intolerant. You get canceled. Jesus. Are you the one? Is this what I get? Maybe you're a faithful follower of Jesus and you develop chronic pain. The cancer comes back. Someone sues you. Someone close to you dies. Jesus, are you the one? Or should I look for someone else? Maybe you look at the world and you despair. You feel like Christianity is not far from being labeled a hate crime. And then you look around and you say, there doesn't seem to be much justice for the least of these. This week, I heard news of a seven-year-old autistic boy in Schaumburg, seven years old, autistic, living with his homeless grandmother. Jesus, where are you? Jesus, are you the one? Or should I look for someone else? Now, before we look at Jesus' answer, I don't want you to miss this, because this is what's most beautiful to me about John the Baptist. Because what does he do with his very real, authentic question? What does he do? He takes it to Jesus. He takes his, which is to say, he prays. He tells God of his very real concern. Are you the one? That gets to the heart of who he is. Prayer is taking your real heart with your real feelings to the real God who can take it. He can take your big questions. What about me, God? What about me? Are you the one? What is going on in my life and in this world, God? Now, the history of interpretation on this passage makes me a little bit sad, frankly. Three of my heroes, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and my favorite of all, Augustine, they all try to excuse John the Baptist They say he was just asking this question to make a point to his disciples. No, he wasn't. He was asking this question for his sake. This is John's question. It comes from the deepest recesses of who he is. Are you the one? Or should I look for someone else? 
Friends, saints doubt. Elijah asked God to take his life. Jeremiah cursed the day of his birth. And even the mighty Saint Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, it says we were so burdened we despaired of life itself. You know what that means? The apostle Paul was suicidal. This is not Herod snuffing out what he doesn't want to hear about Jesus and his message. This is a follower, one who wants to be with Jesus so bad, saying, what is going on? So let's turn to Jesus and how Jesus responds. Perhaps this will surprise you. Verse 4. And Jesus answered and said, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Sounds nice. Verse 5, Jesus, what he's doing, he's taking a verse, two verses from Isaiah 35 and a verse from Isaiah 61, Isaiah 61.1. He's kind of mashing them up and paraphrasing them, quoting them back to John. Let me read to you the first part of Isaiah 61.1 that Jesus is quoting here. This is what Isaiah 61.1, the first half of the verse says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. You hear that. You hear that in verse 5, right? Good news to the poor, okay? But then Jesus stops. He does not go further in the quote. He simply says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, Jesus, if anyone knew his Bible and knew the Scriptures, Jesus knew his Bible. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, he quotes all of Isaiah 61, 1, but not here. He stops halfway through the verse because he's speaking to John. What does he leave out? Let me read all of Isaiah 61, 1. And by the way, John knew the Scriptures too. He would have known that Jesus left this out. This is all of Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Sent me to heal up the brokenhearted. So, good, far, so far, so good. But then he goes on. Isaiah 61. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison for those who are bound. He doesn't say it. He, in, in Luke chapter 4, look, he says it. But here to John... He doesn't say it. And John knew that. And it must have hurt him. Jesus is doing all this stuff. What about me? He doesn't even finish the quote. He simply says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Functionally, Jesus is saying to John, I know I'm not the Messiah you expected. And I know I'm not doing what you want. And John, you're going to die in prison for my name's sake. That's the story I'm writing for you. Trust me. Now, John has missed two things, maybe three, that I want us to see real quickly. And I say maybe three because this first one, I'm not sure that John misses, although I think we do. And it's this. Jesus does not come to offer wish fulfillment He is not a genie in a bottle. He is not a good luck charm. He does not offer, and I quote, your best life now. He doesn't. He said, anyone who would come to me must take up his cross and follow me. You know what that means? It means dying to self, not your best life now. But here's the good news about that. Jesus gives to each of us. He gives to you and to me the life and the story we need to follow him and to become the women and men he has called us to be. Let me say that another way. 
The key to following Jesus is learning to accept and love your story. The story that God has given to you and to me. He didn't give me your story. He didn't get you got your story. John the Baptist's story involved being decapitated in a prison cell for giving his life for Jesus. That was his story. God gives each of us our story and calls us to love him and to trust him and to trust that our story is the best story for us. Do you love your story? The second thing that John has missed is the paradox of the kingdom, which is to say the kingdom of God at this point in John's time and in ours, by the way, has come but not in fullness. The Messiah is present, but there is still more to come. The kingdom is now, but it is also not yet. The story is not over. The fullness of blessing is still to come. It's almost like John wanted Jesus to conquer, but not to suffer. He wanted Jesus to establish justice, but not to wash the disciples' feet. He wanted Jesus to have a crown and didn't realize that Jesus must first bear the cross. Which brings me to the third thing and the most important thing that John seems to have missed. What John misses is that Jesus came first not to bring judgment. Jesus came first to bear judgment. Not first to bring judgment, to bear judgment. Jesus, make no mistake, he will bring judgment. Every deed and word will be placed in the scales and judged. He will swing the axe. He will use the winnowing fork. Herod, if he didn't repent later in life, Herod will be judged. But before Jesus brings justice, he bears judgment. Before he brings judgment, he bears judgment. And this is what differentiates friends, Christianity from all other world religions. God puts himself in the dock. God suffers the punishment for us. He suffers the judgment. He bears the judgment. Because not long after this story, Jesus, the spotless lamb of God, the one in whom there was no corruption, no deceit, nothing wrong, he too will be arrested on trumped-up charges, tried and indicted in a kangaroo court, and crucified naked on a Roman cross, bearing the guilt, bearing the shame, bearing the judgment of the world. You see, Jesus faced the fire of judgment. He faced the axe before and for us. He bears the judgment, friends, so that we don't have to. He is our substitute in our place condemned, cut down, burned in the fire. In our place condemned, he stood. He is the judgment bearer. He is the sin bearer. He drinks the cup of God's wrath so that we do not have to. Now, you may not have done the things that Herod and his mistress have done, but you've thought them. But you have thought them. And like me, like all of us, we need someone to stand in the gap for us. We need a substitute, not someone who just brings judgment, because, friends, we all fall short of that. We all fall short. We need someone who will bear the judgment. And, friends, we got somebody. We got a guy. We got a guy who has borne the judgment for us. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus doesn't just come to bear judgment. That would be really bad news, not just for Herod, but for you and for me. Jesus comes to bear judgment for you and for me. Using a little bit of the words from Dale Bruner, let me paraphrase 
chapter 11, verse 6. God bless you, John, and God bless all of us if we do not throw this whole thing over because I am a different and better Messiah than you were expecting. Now, this is one of my favorites. I, I love this story. I mean, it's so moving and so powerful to me. And I want to leave us with several lessons from this story in one question. Several lessons in one question from the story of John the Baptist and a little bit from Herod as well. The first lesson is this, and, and Kevin Van Hooser referred to this last week, is the authenticity of the New Testament documents. I mean, what other religion would have one of the most public and ideal followers questioning the founder, right? The Bible could have easily scrubbed this out, but it includes episodes like this, testifying to the authenticity of God's word. But second, a lesson is that suffering for Jesus' sake is nothing new, and it should not surprise us. I know that in this room there's many people that are in jail cells right now. I don't know what it is for you, but you, you, you feel like you're in jail. And you're asking, are you the one? Or should I look somewhere else to find satisfaction and hope and meaning in my life? In fact, it's not just that suffering is for all of us, but suffering is actually one of the ways. It's one of the ways that Jesus grows us into the men and women he wants us to be. He had to take John to the very end of himself. I mean, can you imagine John asking this question? He had to take him there, though. And he had to put him in a jail cell to do it. Are you the one? John would have never asked that. He took him to the very end of himself, but he didn't break him. What a beautiful image. But then third lesson is doubts and questions are okay. Do you know this? That it's okay to question God? C.S. Lewis famously says, The person who has not doubted has never really believed. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to try on Christianity. One of my hopes for our church is there were a place that always takes questions seriously, where your questions are engaged, where people of all places and all beliefs and all backgrounds can come and ask their questions. It's okay to doubt. Even John the Baptist, even John the Baptist doubted. So those are the lessons, but let me ask you and leave you with one, with one question. Be honest, do you feel this morning more like Herod or John the Baptist? Which is to say, do you know what Jesus says, but you want to do what you want? Or do you feel like you have sincere questions, serious questions? If you're like me, there's a little of both in you. There's a little of Herod. And there's a little of John. It's easy to admit the John part. Are you willing to admit the Herod part? I don't want you in this part of my life, Jesus. I want to be more like Herod. Do you feel more like Herod or John the Baptist? Be honest, I would imagine for most of us, it is both of us. And for both of us, I want to leave you with a word from John the Baptist. For all the Herods and Johns in the room, and we're, all, we're a mixed lot, all of us, within us. This is a word from John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let me pray. God. You know us. You know our stories, you wrote them. 
You know what we need better than we do. Be gracious to us. Amen.